When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today, as we prepare for Donald Trump taking office in two weeks, we'll take a close look at the state that will lead the resistance to Trump. That, of course, is California, where Trump got only 32% of the vote and where Republicans hold no statewide offices, a state that used to vote for Republicans. How and why did California move from red to blue Harold Meyerson will explain. Also, we've been thinking about Michelle Obama and how much we will miss her, especially in comparison to her successor as First Lady, Melania Trump. Amy Willens will comment. But first, black life and death in the age of Obama. For that, we turn to Kai Wright. He's the nation's features editor. He was host and producer of The United States of Anxiety, the podcast produced by the nation and WNYC. It was named the number two podcast of the year by The Atlantic. We talked about it here a couple of times. Kai Wright, welcome back and congratulations. Thank you, and I am thrilled to be back. Well, Obama's presidency opened with genuine hope in black America. How would you describe the way it's ending? Well, in quite a bit of fear, uh, certainly for me and for a great many folks, but particularly, I think, in communities of color. And it's really uh, one of the ironies. There are a lot of ironies, and, and, and all of us have been pondering over them. But, you know, just the real juxtaposition of where we were uh, emotionally eight years ago uh, and where we are now in most communities of color, certainly in black communities, it's just really, really striking to, to, to have had that outsized joy that people felt um, and now to have uh, what is at best resignation, you know, which is not a good thing, but that's, that seems to be almost the, the best emotion that you see um, is the resignation, you know, and, you know, at the other end, just terror at what's going to happen. Some people would say the biggest thing Obama did for people of color was pass Obamacare. That's not the way Obama talked about the Affordable Care Act. What do you think? Neither him nor his detractors ever talked about Obamacare as either a racial justice program or an anti-poverty program, but it is both things. It is flawed in many ways, um, but, uh, but the reality is that it is the most ambitious version of either a racial justice or, or anti-poverty program that we've seen arguably since Lyndon Johnson. Um, it 
brought millions of people into Medicaid, which is the nation's program, health insurance program for, for the working poor. Millions of people brought millions more into coverage uh, through, and, and I, what we don't talk about is that the subsidies, the, the vast, vast majority, I think it's something like 90% of people who bought insurance in the private, who have bought insurance in the private market have done so with subsidies, right? So it's a, it's a massive government program uh, to combat poverty and, uh, and to fix one of the great one of, one of the many great racial inequities, uh, which was access to coverage. Now, a shocking fact about Obamacare that doesn't get discussed is that uh, the folks, Algernon Austin, who is a researcher who used to be at the Economic Policy Institute, did a study and established that the racial disparity between black and white kids in the course of between 2014 and 2016, the racial disparity between black and white kids in coverage zeroed out. There is no longer a racial disparity between those two in, in access to health coverage. This is unprecedented. I mean, we, I, I spoke with Algernon and I tried to, you know, who is a very smart guy on, on, on racial disparities, and I tried to get him to name one time in history when we zeroed out a, a, a racial disparity. He couldn't do it. So the law accomplished that, uh, it, and, and it did that in a race-neutral and a race-blind way, which is troubling, and, uh, and, and we'll have to wrestle with whether what that means. But in terms of outcome, uh, it has been a, uh, a, a very significant racial justice program. So if the passage of Obamacare was the high point of the Obama years for Black America, the low point probably came in the summer of 2014. Remind us what was going on with Black America in the summer of 2014. Yeah, yeah I mean, I've argued that really to understand his legacy on race in general, you really just have to look at that summer, you know, and so it, it began, well, the, first off, the year began with the launch of Obamacare, right? So the year began with millions of people, many of them African-American, getting coverage and going to the doctor for the first time, sometimes in their lives and certainly in, in many, many years. But then that spring, Eric Garner was killed. Sorry, not that spring, that summer, Eric Garner was killed here in New York. And six weeks later, about, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. And Black Death has, has, has led the news ever since. You know, and so we, we had these terrible, awful events taking place. And alongside that, at, during this time, you know, Barack Obama spent, you have to, it was an election year, it was a congressional election year, and so Barack Obama spent the summer giving speeches about his economic recovery, trying to get people throughout the Obama coalition re-excited and to remember, hey, listen, we're, we're, we have done things, we're moving the ball. And he was, when you look back and you read those speeches alongside the news uh, of what was happening in the world, it is quite jarring. You're really left with a man who is just very un uncharacteristically out of touch. So that that bad summer of 2014, Eric Garner on Staten Island, Michael Brown on the street in Ferguson, a few more. We remember Freddie Gray in the back of that police van in Baltimore, yeah. Sandra Bland in that Texas jail, 12-year-old Tamir Rice in Cleveland. That was a summer, you say, where Obama was talking about economic gains. Yeah. Um, what about economic gains for people of color? What about jobs? Well, this is another thing that, you know, I, I just am wrestling with a way to understand him and his legacy. So everything about his, his recovery program has been couched in uh, a race-neutral way. He is not promoted targeted interventions in any of the communities hardest hit and that 
is uh, overwhelmingly African-American communities have been hardest hit by this recession, remain so. Either politically or policy-wise, he, he didn't target those communities. That said, nonetheless, right, uh, the recovery that he was urging everyone to see in 2014, that it, it was beginning then, we now know turned, became historic. It has reached historic proportions um, in terms of the recovery in jobs, in terms of the, the reduction in poverty numbers. Now, the problem being, of course, that poverty also remains still higher than any time it's been on, at any time on record. Um, and those, those, those improvements, both in jobs and in, in poverty, were seen in all racial and ethnic groups, and in nearly all racial and ethnic groups, they were seen amongst uh, African-Americans, uh, and, uh, and across geography and across class. And in fact, the, the, the strongest improvements in jobs were seen at the bottom of the, uh, of the economy. So, so he was he was right. <laughs> you know, there was there was there was a remarkable recovery underway. Well, we've gone for almost nine minutes without mentioning Donald Trump directly. <laughs> Donald Trump entered politics in the Obama years with that birther thing. How did Obama respond to Trump's race baiting? Well, and so this is the problem, right? So all of these great things that I've just described, Obamacare and the economic recovery and all of it being done in a race-neutral way, I fear uh, actually sets the stage for Donald Trump because Barack Obama's passionate belief in unity, um, his passionate belief in the American story, uh, and the idea that if we all struggle together and don't focus on our, if we don't divide ourselves along race or party or gender or whatever it may be, and we all work together then all, then, then toward a progressive future, then we'll have one. That just doesn't account for the fact that, that the Confederacy lives um, and, uh, and, and that there are people uh, who uh, are who are deeply opposed to the new America and, uh, and are prepared to have a politic that is that, and prepared to demagogue it. Um, and, and so if you insist on governing and politicking from a race-neutral perspective up against somebody, uh, up against a movement that is absolutely prepared to name race, um, that is prepared to blow dog whistles, that is prepared to lead not just Donald Trump, but in the way that the Republican Party has led over the past at least eight years, um, then you then, then you're, 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 you've you've left the battlefield. You've left the battlefield of race, uh, and it is perhaps not enough to simply come up with some policy interventions that will help everybody. If in fact you are not leading politically on race as well when there's somebody like Donald Trump around. So are you saying that Obama is responsible for the fact that Republicans have become the party of white nationalism? Is Obama responsible for so much of the white working class abandoning the Democrats this year? I'm not saying he's responsible for it. I'm saying that the Democrat, he's, he is the latest embodiment of the Democratic Party's long consensus that the only way to deal with racism and racial inequity in America is to avoid talking about it and to try to just make policy uh, that brings everybody on board. And that they figure if they can make policy that appeals to uh, working class and poor white folks, just like it appeals to African Americans and Latinos and people of color, then, hey, we can get past this without ever having to say the words race. The problem being that there, 
that the Confederacy exists and that there has been a party perfectly willing to talk to working class white people and say, no, your problem is black people. Your problem is immigrants. Your problem is Muslims. And if you refuse to engage in that conversation, you've ceded the battlefield to them. Now, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the election, I really, really wrestled with, you know, that has been my stance for some time. I have, I have, I have sung that song from, from whatever mountaintop anybody would give me. And, uh, and I wrestled with, well, well, okay, am I wrong, right? Because like, Barack Obama managed to win. He managed to win working class white voters while delivering Obamacare and while delivering this recovery. And, and so maybe he, he, he sees something I don't. Let's have a little what-if exercise. Could Obama have done it differently? What if he had done it differently? What would he have done? What if he had done what Reverend Barber, uh, Reverend William Barber down in North Carolina advises us of our politics and had called his followers into a higher moral movement, right, Um, that wasn't just about uh, policy and politics and the American experience and, 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 and really in and, and this affirmation of our exceptionalism, which was, was, which was really his, his primary rhetorical device for bringing us all together. We're, we're all, we can all rise above together because we're exceptionalist Americans, as the fact that I'm a black president proves, right? But what if instead he was saying, hey, listen, there is a higher moral purpose here. We're not, we're not just talking about policy. We're not just talking about unity we're, we're, to, to his white supporters in particular. You are being called upon to lead us into a different kind of nation, my white supporters in this coalition. This isn't just about your interests. This isn't just about your, your, your dealing with the recession that we're coming out of. This isn't just about your housing costs. This isn't just about whatever recent factory closed that we're going to reopen. This is about what kind of country we want to have together. And in order to do that, we have to tackle racial inequity. If we're going to build a strong and beautiful country together, we're going to have to tackle racial inequity. And you, white people, are part of that solution with me. What if that had been his message? What if, he had, if that had been how he named race? Now, I'll say, right, like he got there. If you look at his speeches, if you look at his speech in Charleston, uh, when he is providing the eulogy for the uh, for the black people who were shot down in the name of white supremacy. Uh, when, when he finally gets to that kind of message in that eulogy where he says, hey, you know, we, we have a higher moral purpose here than just the politics. And, and, and white people, you need to be part of this coalition that leads us into a, uh, into a new country. What if that had been his message from the beginning? I, I don't know. May, you know, people, many people say to me, well, you know, he would have lost dramatically because you're challenging white supremacy at that point and you'd lose dramatically. I don't know. I'm grasping for straws like, straws like everybody else. Uh, but, but, but I do know that the, in the absence of that conversation, in the absence of a positive message explicitly about race, what's left is the message that the Tea Party and that Donald Trump delivered. And, uh, and, and here we are. Kai Wright wrote about black life and death in the age of Obama for the nation's special issue on the Obama years. Read it at thenation.com. Kai, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you so much. We're broadcasting today from the Center for the Study of Michelle Obama, and our guest is Amy Willens. She's a frequent guest here, longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She's also the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, Politico, and lots more. She won the National Book Critics Circle Award for her most recent book about Haiti. It's called Farewell, Fred Voodoo. 
and she also teaches in the literary journalism program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, on the list of things we feel bad about, a lot of people list feeling bad about Michelle Obama leaving the White House, even if we don't think about her successor, Melania Trump. Uh, Michelle's greatest moment in the campaign came after that Donald Trump Access Hollywood groping tape came out in mid-October. I'm sure a lot of people remember her speech. This was mid-October. Let's listen to a minute and a half of Michelle Obama talking about the Donald Trump groping tape. This is not something that we can ignore. It's not something we can just sweep under the rug as just another disturbing footnote in a sad election season. Because this was not just a lewd conversation. This wasn't just locker room banter. This was a powerful individual speaking freely and openly about sexually predatory behavior and actually bragging about kissing and groping women, using language so obscene that many of us were worried about our children hearing it when we turn on the TV. And to make matters worse, <laughs> it now seems very clear that this isn't an isolated incident. It's one of countless examples of how he has treated women his whole life. And I have to tell you that I listen to all of this and I feel it so personally. The shameful comments about our bodies, the disrespect of our ambitions and intellect, the belief that you can do anything you want to a woman, it is cruel, it's, it's frightening. And the truth is, it hurts. It, it, it hurts. It's that feeling of terror and violation that too many women have felt when someone has grabbed them or forced himself on them and they've said no, but he didn't listen. Michelle Obama talking about that Donald Trump Access Hollywood groping tape. That was in the middle of October. The New York Times the next day said that speech made her, quote, the most outspoken first lady in modern history. Uh, Amy, what does it sound like to you? It's such a great uh, little piece of tape there. Um, what I love about it is it shows what people have really come to respect about Michelle Obama, I think, which is oddly, although she is the first of her kind in the White House, is her kind of straight-laced American uh, middle-of-the-road qualities that, you know, she's like a good family person who can't stand to hear this and you can see her girls behind her when she's saying this, imagining why she gets so upset about it. Um, and, of course, we haven't really had a candidate like Trump uh, against which someone might have spoken out like this. But this was the moment when she really came forward uh, on behalf of Hillary. Before that, she'd been a good campaigner and everything, but now she got a little bit passionate. And I think, you know... To hear someone speak like that about women coming out of the White House it was really powerful. And to hear the first lady, who is often thought of as like, kind of, not this first lady, but often thought of as a kind of semi-person, a sort of loser who tags along dutifully after an important man, to hear her outrage over the treatment of women in particular was uh, heartening. And I think around the nation, the message was heard, although possibly not obeyed. <laughs> 
given the vote. Yeah. You know, Michelle had been sort of tamped down for a long time. A lot of our friends think Michelle was always more of a radical than her husband. And they remember it early in the 2008 campaign when she said, quote, for the first time in my adult life, I am really proud of my country, close quote. She seemed to be talking about the fact that a black man was going to be elected president. That was a classic political gaffe, somebody <laughs> saying they weren't supposed to, but what was actually true. Never do that. And after that, we sort of think she was required to keep pretty quiet about what she really thought. Well, there are a lot of things to debate about that. One of the things I love about that quote is it's she says, for the first time in my adult life. <laughs> um, and you think, again, of this uh, young girl who was really properly raised in a very democratic family with hardworking parents, both of them. Uh, you know, she probably was raised with a lot of patriotism till she took a look around and went off to Princeton as an undergraduate and saw what kind of uh, isolation African-Americans could live in when they were living among white privileged elites. So I think adult life is something to be stressed in that quote. Uh, but also I wonder, I mean, she is... I think, a person who understands – she's very much of a grown-up, uh, not to stress the adult factor. And when she saw the pushback against that quote, I think she thought, okay, you know, I don't think she was tamped down. Don't forget Obama calls her the boss. Mm -hmm. um, but she tamped herself down. She said, okay, I'm not going to just say what I think and allow my emotions to uh, carry me the way they had perhaps before he was – yeah. going to be the president. I know you wrote about her for the Washington Post back in 2008. What did she seem like to you at that point, and how has she changed over the uh, eight years? Well, it's funny. Even I look at the uh, picture of the book I was reviewing, which was a, um, a biography of Michelle, an early biography by a journalist named Liza Mundy, uh, and the picture of Michelle, she looks so conservative and and so um, Midwestern, if I may say so, okay. as a New Yorker and okay. an Angelino. Okay. And she has a little flip and she looks like Donna Reed. And she really, I think, came into her own identity in the White House, both in the, the program she pushed for. In 2008, it wasn't clear what her project would be. Every first lady is supposed to have a project. I mean, going back to... Litter. Uh, 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 highway beautification was Lady Bird Johnson. For Michelle, it was not health care, which was Hillary's project when she was the first lady. It was not voting rights. It was not climate change. It was it was a very feminine project. Seeming. Childhood obesity. You'd think who could possibly be against helping children avoid obesity. And she started that White House vegetable garden to promote healthy eating. And she was against junk food. How controversial could this be? I thought this has got to be the easy, the easiest thing ever. There are a couple of things to say about that. And one is that the epidemic of childhood obesity is a, a problem in the inner cities in the United States because Kids aren't being fed by their parents who are too busy and too stressed out to 
cook the way people used to cook, and everybody's eating in fast food restaurants. And there's a huge industry that is now in this vicious cycle with fat kids and uh, big agriculture to make this a continuing thing. So, in fact, what looked like the usual nice first lady program for little children was very political and really was an attack on some of the uh, biggest uh, conservative political supporters in this country, which is Big Agra. So um, that's why this cute little thing for chubby children to make them thinner and look it looked like President Kennedy's physical fitness program to some degree was, in fact, a deeply political thing. And she knew it, I am sure of it. You know, she succeeded at a few things with this. She raised the nutritional standards for school lunches, and she eliminated the sale of junk food in, in public schools. But she went up against, as you say, big food, big agriculture, the fast food industry, and she lost all the big battles, I think it's fair to say. There was no... Uh, federal regulation of of fast food, of nutritional, la- even nutritional labeling she wanted to improve. And whose White House was in charge of that at the time? <laughs> Interesting point. The lobbyists and the campaign contributions from big food, from agribusiness, totally out-lobbied and outgunned well, Michelle Obama. Also, traditionally, um, in agriculture and the bureaucracy, there it's, it's a revolving door. So the people who are policing are, are, you know, this is no surprise to the listeners of this station, are the people who work in the industry. So it's very hard to change those policies. That's true. But also so much money, so much power resides in these people now. Yeah. I imagine, they'll, I imagine they'll shut down the, the White House uh, organic vegetable oh, garden that's the on least the lawn of the and, and replace it with a Carl's Jr. <laughs> Maybe they'll pl- replace it with a huge meat slaughtering uh, uh, <laughs> cattle farming operation on the White House grounds. That would be fantastic. They don't like how the uh, school lunches have been fixed because that was, I mean, this is me analyzing, that was an easy place to put your fast food-like uh, product. Yeah. And now if if they can't do that, they're losing a big spot and a big client. So it seems to me that that will be a first casualty of the regime. I would say her biggest defeat was the way the effort for the regulation of junk food was was defeated basically totally by by lobbyists and campaign contributions and uh, that's got to be on the agenda for the next time the democrats have a have a chance to win power what what's on your list about michelle as the first lady we are losing i mean i think as a real partner for the president you see that she was that she was always visibly his intellectual equal his uh she was his equal in her ability to articulate whatever she wanted to say. Um, She never seemed to play a second fiddle. She asserted her right to be her own person, go out with her girlfriends, uh, go abroad on her own with the girls and her mom. Uh, I loved the way she kept the extended African-American family right all the way into the White House with her mother in her own quarters upstairs and available to take care of the girls when uh, too much official business 
uh, made it impossible for their mother and father. So I think there was a there was a great sense of family there, uh, but not like some horrible version of the American, some Adams family version of the American family with the all powerful dad and the weak mother and children. Even though <laughs> the dad is the president of the United States, but still. She managed to make it feel like a partnership. She did one other thing this year that was absolutely great, her carpool karaoke with James <laughs> Corden on The Late Show where she sings Stevie Wonder songs in the front seat of his car driving around the, the uh, White House crying. She was, I don't know, what would you say, incandescent. She is that. I encourage our listeners at when this program is finished, Google Michelle Obama Carpool Karaoke if you haven't seen this yet. It will be the highlight of your day. Amy Willens, thanks for coming in today. Thank you so much for having me, John. In two weeks, we begin the period of history where Republicans controlled the White House, the Senate, the House of Representatives, and eventually the Supreme Court. But what would it be like if it was the opposite, if the Democrats controlled everything? Well, we don't need to speculate. We can look at California, where there are virtually no Republicans in power anywhere in the state government, and where Trump got 32% of the popular vote. To understand how that happened... We turn to Harold Meyerson. He's executive editor of The American Prospect and a contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page, and he's been following California politics for a long time. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, I just want to look for a minute at the new laws that took effect in California this week. The laws passed under Democratic uh, control of California. Where should we start? Maybe minimum wage? Yeah, uh, California, of course, along with New York, became uh, the only, one of the only two states to have raised the state minimum wage over time to $15 an hour, and that will fully take effect in 2022, but it, it goes up incrementally each year. So as of January 1st, it went up to $10.50 an hour, uh, on top of which, of course, there were many cities that had raised the minimum wage themselves before the state did, Los Angeles and San Francisco being the two most notable that had already enacted a $15 minimum wage. I mean, the two ways something can become a law in California, one is that it passes the legislature and the governor signs it. The other is that it's enacted by ballot measure. And both of them, both of those processes, have led to some very progressive legislation uh, one of the uh, key things that voters uh, approved in the November election was an extension of a tax hike on the wealthiest Californians that will lead to further funding of education in the state for, for quite some time. Voters also uh, up and down the state voted for some sales tax uh, retention measures that, led to, that will lead to major construction of mass transit in Los Angeles, uh, so there's, there's a whole raft of things. I mean, my, my favorite, actually, was a bill that made denim the official fabric of the state of California. You know, the L.A. Times, I have to interrupt to say, the L.A. Times ran a rather churlish editorial saying that was a waste of time. You seem to disagree. 
Well, that's civic rivalry because this clearly is an, an homage to Levi to the uh, Levi Strauss company yes. to Levi's, which is one of the anchor companies of San Francisco. So what this what this really is about the LA Times editorial is the uh, LA San Francisco rivalry which extends to more things than the Dodgers versus <laughs> the Giants. Uh, okay. Actually what what it reminded me is, is you know one of the oddities of San Francisco history is that the civic establishment in San Francisco before any place else was Jewish it was German Jewish including uh, the, the 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 Levi Strauss company so uh, go figure well, in the Go Figure department, I want to just go back to the minimum wage for a minute and try to figure out what Trump's position is on minimum wage. At one point in the campaign, he said he was in favor of a $10 federal minimum wage, but then when he was pressed on that, he said there should be no federal minimum wage. It should be left up to the states. Have there been any more recent clues about this? Well, the only thing that would constitute something close to a clue is his uh, appointment of Andrew Puzder uh, as his labor secretary. Andrew Puzder has written, it seems like an infinite number, but I'm sure it's a finite number, of op-ed columns opposing raising the minimum wage, which is not exactly the position one might expect a labor secretary to take as well as having been quoted at length about why robots are actually preferable to humans as uh, as employees. Uh, so if, if that's any indication, uh, we're certainly not going to see any action on the minimum wage from the federal government, uh, although I'm sure there are some Republicans who would, uh, at the national level, be fine with abolishing it. On the other hand, every time a minimum wage hike has been placed before the voters of a state, including Republican states like Arizona, South Dakota, you name it, uh, it's always passed. Uh, so uh, th 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 this is really kind of a niche concern for a sector of business, uh, the, the low-wage sector, which Andrew Puzder comes out of. He's a fast food CEO. Uh, and uh, and Republican electeds who, the moment they're elected, if they're not that way before, uh, adopt the mentality of uh, of a sweatshop owner. So go figure. A couple of other laws that they went into effect this week in California: new restrictions on firearms and ammunition, new targets for greenhouse gas emissions that put California. Uh, in in the lead nationally on reducing greenhouse gas uh, emissions. Uh, and, of course, the legislature introduced on its first day, they've not yet passed, several laws that mean California will take the lead in resisting Trump's initiatives. Most of California now is a sanctuary for undocumented people, and local governments will not cooperate with the feds in creating a registry of Muslims. So... The big question that we want to devote the rest of the segment to is what happened in California to make all this possible? What happened to make the Republicans so powerless in in the the biggest state and the economic powerhouse state? Well, before we go to that, I just want to make uh, one one further point, which is beyond declaring a clear opposition to the anti-immigrant uh, position of the incoming Trump administration, uh, a number of cities around California and the state uh, are, are considering measures to actually appropriate funds for defense lawyers for uh, immigrants uh, facing uh, deportation. So it goes beyond 
the statement of, of, of principles to actually spending public dollars in defense of those immigrants. And I think that's, uh, that, that's still a, a step beyond where certainly most places in the United States have gone. So what made California this way? Uh, immigration and the ability to mobilize immigrants like no one really has done in American politics since the days of the Tammany Halls when uh, the ward healers greeted the incoming immigrants on the docks and uh, signed them up and, you know, and, and, and got a whole bunch of loyal voters in return for anything from a uh, public sector job to a Christmas turkey. <laughs> California is 39% Latino, which is a little higher than the percentage of non-Hispanic whites in California. It's about 15% Asian and about 6% African-American, I think. That's a, an incredibly diverse electorate you're looking at, as well as population. And uh, other states that are diverse, still, that, that's not enough. Uh, Texas, like California, is also 39% Latino. But anyone can tell you there are real differences between California politics and, and Texas politics. Uh, one is that uh, whites living on the coast in California in the major metropolitan areas are, tend to be a good deal more liberal than whites in Texas. But beyond that, there is a much higher level of political and electoral participation among California Latinos than among Texas Latinos. Okay, California and Texas have almost exactly the same proportion of Latinos in the population. California's Latinos are a political powerhouse. Texas Latinos are not. How do you explain this? Well, in California, there was an existing political force that wanted to bring Latinos into the political process. And that was the California labor movement, which increasingly itself was becoming heavily Latino and whose leaders uh, in Southern California were uh, themselves Latinos and, and people who grew up under the tutelage of people like Cesar Chavez. They embarked on major citizen naturalization programs, voter registration programs, turnout the vote programs, not only among union members, but um, in the Latino and immigrant populations generally. And th this was in part spurred by the 1994 uh, initiative, Prop 187, which would have banned all undocumented immigrants from all public services, including even kids going to K-12 school. Who was responsible for Prop 187? Well, this began with some nativist right-wing Republicans, but then... It was taken up by the uh, incumbent Republican governor who was running for re-election and not doing very well in the polls, Pete Wilson. And Pete Wilson threw a lot of money into this campaign and identified his own re-election campaign with this campaign and ran a scare campaign and prevailed. And this turned out to be, long-term, the complete death knell of the Republican Party in California. The Latino community uh, and those mobilizing it, chiefly the labor movement in Southern California, began running against Republican nativism for election after election after election. And partly because there were term limits in California, uh, and so there were a lot of open seats with every election, they were able to transform city government and state legislative positions, which increasingly uh, became occupied by uh, Latinos elected by increasingly diverse constituencies in their districts. 
such that, uh, in general, at this point, th- there are some Latinos elected to statewide positions, but where the real dominance is is in the state legislature, where if you look at the legislative leadership of either house of the California legislature, it's generally been a Latino, a Latino Democrat, more often than not since, uh, since about 1996, and including right now. So there's been a real transformation of government and of the electorate, that's what's crucial, that has been an ongoing force to move California towards the left. So we now understand California. A similar process has taken place very recently in Nevada. What's next? I guess Arizona? And is this ever going to happen in Texas? Well, you know, one of the reasons California is different from Texas is that California had a major established institution that saw its own future enhanced by minority, greater minority participation. That was the labor movement. Texas doesn't really have a labor movement. The rate of unionization in Texas is, I don't think it's quite 3%. It may just be over 3%. In California, it's not huge, but by United States standards today, it's, it's pretty damn big. It's about 17 18%. That makes a big difference. So in Texas, this has been a slower process, and some foundations have had to pony up, but it's clearly coming. The Democrats did better in Texas this time around significantly than they did four years ago, Hillary Clinton compared to Obama's total four years ago, similarly in Arizona. And this is clearly coming in, uh, in Arizona. And by the way, where the, where this, this always happens first in cities. So even while the state of Arizona has passed anti-Latino, anti-immigrant legislation, Phoenix has always been a Democratic bastion and and quite opposed to what the state has done. Similarly, in Texas, all of the major cities in Texas, except I think Fort Worth, have Democratic city governments that are are fairly progressive. So it's a process. It'll take longer, but I think Arizona will be the next to go in the direction of Nevada. Of course, the reason Nevada has gone the way it's gone is it does have a major union presence, that being the hotel workers in Las Vegas, who are really a major force in the political transformation of Nevada into an increasingly democratic state. Harold Meyerson, thank you for explaining California and why Nevada, Arizona, and maybe even Texas will be next. My pleasure. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.